Chapter 4, Assessment-Capable Visible Learners Select Tools to Guide Their Learning. Alicia has a dilemma on her hands, but she's not going to give up now. This sixth grader has been investigating animal rights as part of an interdisciplinary research report she's developing. Alicia and her team are going to produce a 60-second public service announcement on responsible pet ownership, advocating spaying or neutering of cats and dogs to curb the population of unwanted animals. They had selected this topic after considering and discarding other ideas for their community service project. Her dilemma at the moment is in figuring out how to organize the multitude of facts into a coherent and persuasive message. Fortunately, her teacher, Isla Gregory, has established a system for students to receive feedback and support from her and one another. Statements around the room are labeled scripting, video production, and editing. Alicia considers each of these stations and decides that the script the team initially developed needs more revision. So she heads to the scripting support table. Once there, she finds several supports. There is a checklist for considering the audience and the overall message, which Alicia considers and discards. We've already done that, and it hasn't changed since we got all these facts together about spaying and neutering, she thinks to herself. Next, she looks at the templates Miss Gregory has provided. One is a two-column template that matches the video shot list to the narration. We're going to need this soon, but not yet. First, we need to get our facts organized before we can write a script, she thinks silently. I need something else. Alisa's face lights up as she examines a template for creating a storyboard. This is what we need. The template includes space to sort and separate problems from goals and facts from reasons. See figure 4.1. Alicia chooses this template for her group and used to use next and uploads it digitally to their workspace. Miss Gregory checks in briefly with Alicia about her decision and nods in approval. The teacher later explains, I don't want my students to remain overly dependent on procedures at the expense of recognizing their own choices. We've done some video production before with lots more scaffolding, but if they're going to grow as strategic thinkers, I can't allow them to follow along in a lockstep kind of way. Once they know the process, I need to step back a little bit and give them room to plan and resolve problems. These decisions are essential in the life of an assessment-capable, visible learner. Alicia needs opportunities to consider which tools and strategies she will use and for what purpose. It is analogous to the range most of us have experienced with cooking. Some would-be chefs don't progress beyond close adherence to a recipe, never straying far from the steps listed. But others, having mastered the basics, get more creative. Decisions are made based on personal preferences, time restrictions, and availability of ingredients. These cooks are able to think more strategically, weighing the tools they have at their disposal with the needs of those who will be eating. Assessment-capable visible learners are like those talented cooks in our own families. They are able to pair tools and strategies with intentions 
and desired in outcomes. It's difficult to make decisions and solve problems when you don't know where you are or where you're heading. The cook who knows what dish she's going to prepare is much more likely to succeed. In classrooms, learning intentions and success criteria help tremendously when it comes to setting these conditions. But students also need to be able to exert choice and make decisions about their own advancement. Student leadership in their own learning allows teachers to function more as activators and evaluators of learning. Hattie, 2012. This is different from being an evaluator of learners, which is about sorting them into categories. To be sure, the tools students need to solve problems and forward their own learning must be taught, but more importantly, regularly used. Strategic applications of tools are mental and intellectual skills, not behavioral ones. Students are going to have a far more difficult time establishing learning habits if they are rarely given the opportunity to use them. Unfortunately, we see lots of energy being expended on initial strategies instruction, but with little opportunity to use them under anything other than highly engineered circumstances. Underlining the main idea on a worksheet of paragraphs doesn't make the student any more able to determine importance. Finding the main idea shouldn't be an academic exercise. It should be a strategic tool readers use when they're trying to gain an understanding of something that they are reading. Students need to use these and other strategies with purpose in the context of learning. Assessment-capable visible learners are those who are actively engaged and can marshal skills and dispositions in order to advance their learning. John speaks often of the need to bring together the skill, the will, and the thrill of learning in our classrooms. Skill is about a learner's knowledge, while will is the learner's disposition. Claxton and Lucas, 2016, memorably state that a skill is something you can do. A disposition is something that you are on the lookout for opportunities to do. Bringing skill and will together and add motivation to learn something interesting, and now you have the third ingredient, thrill. In this chapter, we will examine how assessment-capable visible learners combine skill and will by selecting learning strategies to move forward in their journey. We begin by discussing the importance of equipping students with the skills and tools they need to forward their own learning and their relationship to strategic thinking. An essential but underutilized tool is the effect of practice on learning. We consider deliberative practice as a specific strategic tool under the student's influence. We then transition to an examination of the effectiveness of teaching cognitive study skills in order to provide students with the ability to teach themselves. Next, we will discuss the importance of problem solving as a decision-making tool for students to use. These conditions are both bound up in skill, I know this, I know how to do something, and will, I want to do something. We close out this chapter with discussion of literacy routines to create opportunities for students to apply strategic thinking in the company of their teacher and peers. Learning how to learn. Study skills are a constellation of competencies 
that allows students to acquire, record, organize, synthesize, remember, and use information. Hoover and Patton, 1995. And who wouldn't want students to be able to do those things? They are important in learning content and they are transferable, allowing students to apply what they have learned in new situations. Patty, 2009, suggested that study skills could be organized into three categories, cognitive, metacognitive, and affective. Cognitive study skills usually involve a task, such as note-taking or summarizing. Metacognitive study skills describe self-management, such as planning and monitoring, as well as recognizing when to use various cognitive strategies. Affective study skills involve motivation, agency, and self-concept. Figure 4.2 contains a table of study skills organized into these three categories. As Hattie notes, teaching study skills in isolation can improve students' surface learning. However, teaching study skills in concert with content area can improve deep learning. Elementary classrooms are ideal places to build study skills as students generally have the same teacher for all subjects. Thus, teachers can integrate study skills into their science, social studies, and art lessons. As students move to the middle school and high school, teachers should be aware of and integrate study skills into their content area lessons. The effects of practice on learning. You can't get good at something you don't do. Observing others doing something is important for building a model of what a skill or behavior looks like, but without intentional practice, you're not going to build your own skills. Think of all the cooking, dancing, or sports competitions you've watched. Likewise, students need to practice academic skills in order to gain fluency and proficiency. Most teachers create opportunities for guided practice as part of their teaching, but creating assessment-capable visible learners means going a step further. Teachers need to get students to engage in intentional practice in order for them to acquire and consolidate knowledge. That means that educating students about the benefits of practice is essential. As we have stated before, assessment-capable learners are able to go above the low bar of compliance to steer their own course. Practice is fundamental to learning, especially when acquiring and consolidating cognitive and motor skills. Most readers are required and familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule, which claims that expertise arises from a time commitment to engage in practice. However, it is useful to understand that he is referring to deliberative practice, which is not simply rote rehearsal, but rather is difficult and strains the learner. In other words, it is not just work, but work that is hard to do. Erickson, Crump, and Tesh Romer, 1993. A basketball player doesn't gain expertise simply by throwing countless free throws from the line in a quiet gym. He changes up the demand by practicing from different locations on the court and tests himself as he pushes through a variety of distractions. In other words, 
he makes the work hard. We are reminded of a quote attributed to martial arts icon Bruce Lee. I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. But practice is used for other purposes besides building expertise. Some practice is used to build automaticity such that something becomes increasingly fluent and requires a decreasing amount of attention. In the last chapter, we referred to the development of automaticity, La Berge and Samuels, 1974. Automaticity comes from rehearsal and repetition, learning multiplication facts, sight words, the periodic table of elements, significant dates and events in a nation's history. These are all examples of discrete skills and concepts that pave the way for deeper learning to occur. There are any number of rehearsal techniques that are excellent for building automaticity, such as flashcards, mnemonics, mapping, and summarizing. These and other study skills have a strong effect size, 0.63. In fact, we think so highly of study skills instruction that we will devote a later portion of this chapter to the topic. But in terms of student factors, the fundamental question for them is being able to answer why they are practicing in order to select the right approach. The third grade learners in John Covena's class are challenged to answer this question first before selecting their activity for practicing language. Mr. Covena explains, the children at this school are learning to speak and read in Hopi as well as in English. Our language is our culture. We want young people to be able to speak with their elders and participate in traditions. Mr. Covena devotes time each day to develop his students' Hopi language skills, which includes time for practice. Before moving to collaborative and independent practice activities, they must consider their goals. Are you working on memorizing or on expertise, he asks, reminding them you need both. You just need to know why you're doing what you're doing. The teacher has a number of possible activities for them to choose and labeled as either build my memory or build my expertise. Peter decides that he wants to focus on memorizing and chooses a Hopi vocabulary flashcard game to play with another classmate. Freddie has selected expertise building on this day and settles in to listen to a recording in the Hopi language of a folktale told by a volunteer. Another classmate has also ex selected expertise and has chosen to write a short message in Hopi in a greeting card to her grandmother using language frames the teacher has prepared. Mr. Covena speaks briefly with each, asking about each child's goals. Peter wants to beat his previous time, naming all the vocabulary words in his deck, while Freddie will retell the tale in Hopi to his teacher. Alice, the student writing to her grandmother, will ask Mr. Covena to preview it for errors before sealing it in an envelope. I wouldn't say there's anything unusual about what the students are doing, said the teacher. I want them to know why and to have choice. Practice works much better when you know what you want out of it. Make the most of practice by ensuring that it meets three conditions, targeted, distributed, and self-directed. 
Targeted practice is excellent when developing memorization through rehearsal. Repeated reading, discussed later in the chapter, is an excellent example of a targeted practice instructional strategy. Students at the Health Scientists Focused Secondary School, where two of us work, compete at the state and national levels in events such as medical spelling, emergency responding, public health information campaigns, and medical photography. One event is a prepared team presentation for public health that must be prepared and scripted weeks ahead of time. They has to be delivered in sync with a wordless background video that the students develop. The topic changes each year. One year, the topic was Zika virus, and a team of six high school students developed the video and scripted their lines for the five-minute speech. They engaged in weeks of targeted practice as they honed their speaking skills and timed each line, working first with full scripts, then note cards, and finally, without any supports. They coordinated their delivery so that with the silent video in the background. Perhaps the most interesting was the way they rehearsed, chunking each portion into 30-second passages. Only when they felt they had reached mastery of the first segment would they then move on to the second. Gradually, they coupled longer strings of passages until they had memorized the entire presentation. Apparently, it worked, as the team took second in the state and competed in the international competition. Mr. Covena's decision to set time aside each day for students to practice their language skills is an example of distributive practice. Most of us have learned from our own failures that cramming for a test the night before the exam rarely delivers satisfactory results. Simply said, distributed practice is more effective than mass practice with an effect size of 0.71. It is the practice that is distributed in regular intervals over days and weeks that facilitates acquisition of new knowledge. Without regular practice, skills atrophy. Unfortunately, too many students naively believe that an intensive cram session of several hours is just as useful as short daily sessions leading up to an event. Eighth grade student Victor explained it this way to his to his class on a presentation about learning habits. It's like learning to play soccer. I'm working on my dribbling skills right now. Coach sets up cones for us to perform drills. If I only practiced dribbling for a few hours before the match and didn't touch a soccer ball at any other time, I'd be off the team. Same thing with studying for computer programming tests. If I try to memorize it all the night before, it's a fail. A third condition of practice is that whenever possible, it should be self-directed. Goals that have been determined by the student fuel learning in ways that those set by others cannot. A middle school team of teachers introduced Mastery Monday as a way to create opportunities for students to engage in self-directed practice. Students review the results of the previous week's work including feedback on assignments and homework, and choose an assignment or portion they would like to revisit. During a 15-minute segment of the class, they revise responses and resubmit. Math teacher Beth Russell said it works especially well in her content area.
some of the learning they experience by the end of the week is more advanced. Giving them a chance to go back and make corrections to problems from earlier in the week reinforces the learning. I like it when I, the student Ricardo, who had been listening to the conversation, added, I like it when I see a number correct change on the digital assignment. He said, we don't get a grade on these because our course grades are competency-based. We only get grades on the unit tests, but I like seeing the green bar for the number correct get higher. Teach students how to practice, study, and learn. High school teachers sometimes assume that their students have been taught to engage in study sometime earlier in their schooling. The truth is that many have not, and their lack of skill about how to do so catches up with many of them by middle school when the volume of content knowledge overwhelms them and they can no longer get on by paying attention. In this next section, we profile five cognitive study skills that can be introduced to elementary students. Of course, these are equally vital at the secondary level. However, these skills pay off when introduced early as a part of learning. Mnemonics. A useful strategy to help with the initial recall of information is mnemonics, from the Greek word for memory. You may rely on mnemonics, for instance, to recall the lines EGBDF on the travel clef. Every good boy does fine. Teach students this strategy to boost their recall. While learning the cardinal points of the compass, students in Michael Saunders' first grade class were introduced to the mnemonic never eat shredded wheat to associate the directions in the correct order clockwise starting at the top. But as Mr. Saunders said to his class, I never, I really like shredded wheat. So I don't like to try and remember the directions with this saying. How about each table group come up with different mnemonic that they can use to remember this information? One of the groups came up with no evidence, sorry writers, and another group suggested never eat shaved walrus. Graphic organizers. Visually organized information can help students see connections between the ideas and the information they are learning. The key to using graphic organizers as a study skill is to ensure that students are not simply copying from their teacher. Instead, students need to be given information and then encouraged to select a graphic organizer that will allow them to represent the information. For example, the students in Marco Jimenez's fourth grade class were studying the similarities and differences between the state government and the federal government. The students had read from their textbook, watched a video, engaged in a class discussion, and heard their teacher talk about this. They had a lot of information, but Mr. Jimenez knew that they wouldn't remember it, much less be able to use the information if they didn't study it. He asked his students to think about all the graphic organizers they had used and to identify one that they believed would work to capture similarities and differences. Carlos chose a compare and contrast diagram, whereas Natalie selected an attribute tool that allowed her to name each factor, and then noted how it was used in the state and federal government. In all, there were six different tools selected by students in Mr. Jimenez's class. Flashcards. This sounds very old school, 
But flashcards and their digital equivalents, such as Quizlet.com and the Chegg app, can help students remember information. Of course, they need to do more than remember information, but remembering is important. The third grade students in Hiroko Mayakoya's class used a free app called StudyBlue, which allows users to create flashcards with text, pictures, and audio. During their investigation of biomes, students were focused on diverse life forms from different environments. Mrs. Mayakoya asked her students to create a series of flashcards so that they could remember the various biomes, the environmental conditions of those biomes, and the types of animals that lived in the environment. In doing so, she provided her students with a lot of options about what to include, and the app provided them options for how to include their information. In creating the biomes, the flashcards, students were studying the biomes, and in practicing with their flashcards, they were continuing to think about the content they were expected to learn. Summarizing. Writing summaries of content area information is another way to study. Importantly, it's not the only way that students should study, but when they write summaries about their learning, they start to chunk information in ways they can remember. Ideally, students summarize across multiple sources of information. This provides them with an opportunity to integrate ideas. Unfortunately, students often write summaries that are longer than the original sources that they read, and they use the exact same words the author used. They need to be taught to summarize by identifying key words in the sources and then generating sentences on their own around the key terms. Andrea Stein teaches her sixth graders to summarize as they read. Ms. Stein models summary writing for her students before asking them to take on this task. In addition, she meets with students during their conferring time to talk about the summaries that her students have written. For example, while meeting with Jacob to talk about his summary of women in ancient civilizations, Ms. Stein says, how are you feeling about your summaries this week? And Jacob responds that he thinks they are improving and that he is staying focused on the main ideas. Ms. Stein agrees, adding, in this summary, you have three main points, the same as the author. It seems to me that this was a good choice. How did you decide to do that? Jacob responded, well, I was thinking that I couldn't really leave any one of them out. I mean, some women in Greece dressed like men to go see sports. That's a detail, but I think it is important because that is different from women in Sparta. Their conversation continued. And it was obvious to Miss Stein that Jacob's summaries helped him learn and remember the content of her social studies class. Problem solving. In addition to possessing the cognitive skills to study, students need to develop the will or motivation to solve problems, make decisions, and take action. However, an important consideration is the gap between what the learner knows and what she needs to reach a learning goal. If the distance between what a learner currently knows and will need to know in order to resolve a problem is too great, chances are good that the learner will not be successful. In order to bridge this distance, teachers provide tools that will help students resolve problems.
For example, in the opening scenario, Ms. Gregory made a variety of templates available to Alicia in order to resolve the problem of organizing information for the video they would be producing. Learners' dispositions and attitudes also play a part in whether they will successfully resolve a problem or not. Dispositions are more general in nature. For example, a learner who routinely works cooperatively with peers is more likely to have a disposition toward peer learning. However, attitudes are more situational. A learner who avoids independent reading time, but not other activities, may be signaling that she has a negative attitude about the task. There are dispositions and attitudes related to problem solving as well. Dispositions needed for problem solving include the willingness to persist, to seek assistance, to be curious, and to seek answers. However, attitudes may interfere. Possessing a fixed mindset about confronting a difficult writing assignment, for instance, can narrow a student's vision for how he might go about resolving a problem. As noted in the previous chapter, one's possession of a fixed or malleable mindset is not consistent across all situations. A growth mindset is a coping strategy to draw upon in the face of challenge and one that should not be uncoupled from effort and outcomes, Dweck 2016. Therefore, the amount of scaffolding and feedback needed about how the problem is being solved is likely to vary for each child and across content areas. Learners need teachers who are responsive to their needs and ensure that they experience enough success to build confidence and help them clarify their thinking. Clear and shared understanding of what success looks like helps to develop dispositions and attitudes for accepting greater levels of challenge. Fifth grade student Neil isn't very confident in his ability to, in science class, especially in labs that involve a lot of data to analyze. The good news is his teacher, Eileen Vitteborough, is working at fostering his problem solving skills. During a lab on magnets in which he needed to draw conclusions about the relationship between strength of electromagnets and the number of wraps of insulated copper wire around a nail, Neil faltered. Noting his distress, Ms. Viterbo stopped by Neil's lab table and began asking him what he knew so far, inviting him to list his findings. Within a few minutes, Neil had correctly surmised that his data showed more windings were equated with a stronger electromagnet. She then reframed what he had done to resolve his problem. I want you to see how you file, followed specific scientific procedures to answer your question. First, you conducted multiple trials and only changed one variable, which was the number of windings. You recorded your findings in a table so you could see the results. Then you analyzed the data by looking for a pattern. You found that the more copper windings were on the nail, the more iron shavings your electromagnet could pick up. You solved this problem because you followed a pattern. Trust yourself. At that last remark, Neil smiled. I know, Ms. Viterbo, it's like you always say, just breathe and think I'm a scientist. Fostering the dispositions and attitudes of students to take on their own learning is a primary job of any caring educator. However, these must be as a part of the fabric of the classroom, 
not simply isolated lessons on persistence and mindset that are divorced from any context, Claxton and Lucas 2016. These dispositions and attitudes are either built or destroyed each time we speak to a child. Notice or ignore verbal signs of distress, mark student papers, and fill out report cards. We communicate what is important and what is not valued through these interactions. Teaching is never solely about knowledge building. Each interaction is an opportunity to strengthen one's learner's habits for planning, organizing, and relating to and resolving problems. A consistent focus on performance of learning in grades rather than mastery learning in turn can undermine even young children's mindsets, including those who began the school year with a positive motivational framework about their own learning. Create opportunities to apply strategies. We are not suggesting that learning is about squirreling oneself away in an isolated corner. Much of the enactment of strategic thinking comes in the company of others, both teacher and peers, especially through meaningful discussion. Learning in the company of others and with others deepens and extends what a learner can do independently. Reading is an example of an academic pursuit usually defined as a wholly internalized act, yet in the classroom is rightly developed in a sociocultural context. Reading comprehension strategies, instruction has been of singular interest for decades, most notably through a series of studies examining what good readers do. Paris, Lipton, and Wixton, 1983. The strategic readers make conscious and deliberate plans, such as making connections to prior knowledge, forming and revising predictions, and employing mental visualizations as needed. But a criticism is that these strategies have been turned into curriculum itself. Instead of applying these approaches as needed to increasingly complex texts, they are taught and retaught for years, often as discrete units. Once students have initially learned about ways to monitor their understanding, for instance, they don't need to be introduced to it again. Rather, they need opportunities to use them authentically during the act of reading. Collaborative reasoning. Once taught, comprehension strategies are evidenced in discussions of texts. These collaborative conversations provide students with opportunities to apply critical thinking. Collaborative reasoning is, perfect, is a pre-led small group protocol for fostering critical analysis skills, Zhang and Stahl, 2011. The teacher is present to facilitate the discussion, which often begins with a big question that is meant to encourage critical stance. Second grade students in Janelle Lowe's class had read an informational article on a community garden in their city. The protocol she uses, developed by Clark, 2003, can be found in figure 4.3. During the small group discussion that followed, Miss Lowe began by asking her students, why does this community work? Her students, who have been studying communities in social studies, use the article to critically analyze the text. Jamal, the people in this garden did all kinds of stuff. Trina, like they weren't all the same. Jamal, yeah, like some of the people was old and then there was bigger kids too. Anissa, but they all helped. 
like the big kids carried little stuff or heavy stuff, Trina, and little kids pulled weeds. I pulled weeds in my mama's garden, Miss Lowe. You're saying that people of different ages worked in the garden. Kendall, it's like a family. Miss Lowe, say more about that. Kendall, well, families have old people and babies and kids and grown-ups. Trina, and so do neighborhood communities. Jamal, in the community garden, everyone has a job. Miss Lowe, why is that important for a community? Anissa, because then everyone is needed. Miss Lowe's use of collaborative reasoning is an extension of her small group guided reading routine. Collaborative reasoning provides her students with the opportunity to think critically and to engage in discussion that is driven by the voices of their peers rather than a conventional questioning routine that can limit thinking. Repeated reading. Repeated reading is another sound practice for deepening reading skills, although one that is unfortunately misused by many well-meaning teachers. Repeated reading is an instructional method first articulated by Samuels, 1979. In its original form, repeated reading required a short passage of 50 to 200 words, read several times silently and out loud until sufficient levels of rate and accuracy were attained. Later efforts included corrective feedback from an adult, as well as student goal setting and self-monitoring of progress. Repeated reading instruction has been extensively researched. A number of studies on repeated reading have been further analyzed using a statistical tool called meta-analysis, which is used to calculate effect size across multiple studies. Therian's 2004 meta-analysis of 16 studies is widely cited and offers interesting information beyond the positive impact of repeated reading. This study revealed several essential instructional conditions, namely that repeated reading, one, is performed in the company of an adult who reads the passage first, two, requires that the text be read three to four times by the child, and three, involves corrective feedback. A more recent meta-analysis of 34 studies on the effects of repeated reading instruction for elementary students with learning disabilities confirms these results. Lee and Yoon, 2017, found it was especially beneficial in building fluency which was further enhanced when students were able to listen to the text being read before reading it themselves. Hattie, 2012, found that repeated reading instruction provides an effect size of 0.67, equivalent to approximately one and a half years of growth for a year in school. But repeated reading has the potential for building more than fluency and comprehension. It can build the habit of rereading. Rereading behaviors and repeating, repeated reading draw on two related constructs. The first, rereading, is a habit that is ultimately under the direction of the student. The second, repeated reading, is an instructional routine devised to build fluency and comprehension. Underpinning both is the element of repetition. These practices, while implemented somewhat differently, have similar goals. 
Rereading to clarify understanding of a text is a tool students can utilize. However, they need authentic reasons to reread, not just for compliance. Changing the task and purpose provides students an authentic reason for rereading. Assessment-capable visible learners understand that rereading to clarify understanding of a text oh, is a tool they can utilize. Teachers of young children are who are at the emergent stage of reading can reference the print more often during shared readings with picture books. Questions that reference print are especially important for emergent readers who do not naturally attend to print. Evans, Williamson, and Pursue, 2008, found that young children only looked at print during shared readings 6% of the time. Without questions that draw their attention to the print and linguistic features of the text, students fail to learn the value of rereading to bolster their understanding, relying instead on what they knew prior to or can recall from the shared reading. This can privilege auditory memory over investigation and evidence from a text. Changing the task and purpose provides students with an authentic reason for rereading. During a shared reading with the picture book on the beam of light, Burn 2013, a first grade teacher, Monica Ramos, introduced the text, saying, I'm going to read about a famous scientist named Albert Einstein. The first time I read it will be so that you can get some ideas about his life. After finishing the book, she said, now we're going to read it out loud a second time. And this time I want you to listen and look for evidence that tells us if this story could be true. Her change of purpose for reading helped her students focus on the nonfiction elements of the narrative. Her students agreed that the bulk of the book could have been fiction, but the last page offered information about his discoveries. Show me where you found that, the teacher asked. A student replied, it says right here about the moon and spaceships. Focusing on print references, the teacher then said, can you touch the word on this page that says moon? <coughs> the students in Greg Leong's sixth grade class were reading Wonder, Palacio 2012. Much of the reading and discussion of the novel occurred in small group literature circles, but the teacher reserved some passages for a closer inspection of the text. One such passage occurred about one third of the way through the book involving the character Augie's older sister, Olivia. Augie has a severe birth defect and his sister recalls waking up one night to see her mother standing outside Augie's room watching him sleep. After inviting students to read the passage silently, he asks them to read it again, this time to annotate. Each student had a personal copy of the text and the teacher said, here's what I want you to focus on this time. The author spends half this passage using descriptive language about the way Augie's mother looked as she stood in the hall. Make a note in the margin of your book about how the author paints this picture with words. Then we will discuss it together. In both of these cases, the teachers provided authentic reasons for students to reread by changing the purpose and the task. Mr. Leong understands the value of repeated reading but knows that his students will be resistant if they don't see a purpose. 
he also knows that audience and performance are authentic motivators for rereading text because they offer a purpose for doing so. One method of providing an audience is reader's theater, which requires two or more readers to perform the text aloud. Unlike a conventional theater performance, the script remains present and other elements such as props, movement, and lighting are absent. The purpose is to use authentic practice to build oral reading fluency, prosody, and comprehension, all while keeping eyes on the text. Martinez, Roser, and Strecker, 1998, documented its use with second grade students who participated in five-day sequences of readers' theater. The researchers documented ways these small groups made meaning of the script, noting that students themselves initiated discussion regarding oral interpretation that delved into comprehension on a deep level and returning to the text to reach consensus on details of the performance. Mr. Leong used a reader's theater technique to bring dialogue-heavy passages to life. I want them to hear these characters in their head as they read, he explained. The dialogue is rich, funny, and sometimes poignant. I'm also teaching about direct and indirect characterization right now, and dialogue is one important example of the author's craft. One passage occurs late in wonder, after Augie and four friends narrowly escape a beating by some older boys. The teacher met with the five students who would be performing this for the class later in the week. So you've read this and you understand how it fits into the plot, but let's talk about their emotions and how the author shows this, said the teacher. Well, they're relieved they got away, said one student, and they're all pumped up too, added another. But how do you know? Can you go back into the text to figure out where you're getting that impression? Asked the teacher. Using a scripted version of the passage, the students and their teacher annotate the evidence, including punctuation marks, phrases like, we all started laughing, and the author's descriptions about the characters trading high fives and being out of breath from running. Satisfied that the group is on their way to capturing the emotional heart of the passage, he leaves them to work out tracking the dialogue, assigning roles, and beginning rehearsals. Two days later, the group performed it using their radio voices to bring the scene to life. Conclusion, assessment-capable visible learners know where they're headed and have tools for the journey. These tools are a set of metacognitive and cognitive skills that propel their learning, especially when faced with challenge. It is important that students are taught about effective tools, but it's probably even more important that they come to understand a few things about these tools. Namely, not all tools work for all problems. They have choice over which tools to use. They should replace tools that are not working. Developing students' understanding of these principles requires that teachers provide them with multiple opportunities to try on learning tools. That means learners need to make decisions about which strategies to select. In addition, as students increase the responsibility they have for their own learning, teachers must provide students with the means for students to assess their own learning and then make adjustments in their learning plans, 
which might include selection of new or different tools. In this vein, study skills and deliberate practice become important considerations for teaching. It's not enough to cover the content. Instead, teachers have to focus on the ways in which people learn content, which includes practice and feedback. Coupled with the effective content dispositions that learners depend upon, the outcome of these efforts will be the development of students who can tap into the skill, will, and thrill of reading and learning.